This month and every month, Penguin Random House invites readers to uplift AANHPI stories and represent Asian stories. Thanks to our friends at Penguin Random House, I added Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng, Know My Name by Chanel Miller, and Fiona and Jane by Jean Chen Ho to my Asian American bookshelf. We're also excited to read My Monster and Me by Nadia Hussein to our kids and to cook up amazing meals with recipes from Korean American by Eric Kim. For more incredible books by AANHPI authors, visit prh.com forward slash represent Asian stories. From page-turning fiction to hilarious memoirs, there's a book for everyone. Go to prh.com forward slash represent Asian stories to explore the list. Today and every day, support Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander authors and storytellers. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan. And thank you for joining us today. It has been a week. Um, as many of you know and have uh, heard the other episode or seen it through uh, photos on Instagram, uh, it's been quite a week for me personally. Uh, started the week on my birthday on Monday, uh, flying to D.C., had a life-changing and life-giving, um, just amazing, amazing time at the White House. Uh, thanks again to Howard O. Uh, thanks again to Danny Lee and Liz Kleinrock for being such great friends, and uh, thanks to everybody who has encouraged me along the way and sent me notes, commented on the photos on LinkedIn and on Instagram. Um, really, really uh, still trying to process everything, what it means uh, for us here at the Asian Americans to uh, be invited to the White House to, in, in recognition of sharing Asian American stories. We were uh, hanging out with so many amazing, amazing Asian American leaders, uh, many of whom uh, will come on the podcast soon. And so uh, that was an amazing, amazing trip. Uh, today, I'm going to share with you an interview that I had with another great, great friend of mine and uh, really an awesome community leader who, uh, through his love of a culture that wasn't his own, uh, was able to build a very, very awesome and great business to help share uh, Japanese snacks to the rest of the world. Uh, Danny Tang is my guest on this episode, and we'll learn about his upbringing and what led him to create a little company, well, not so little anymore, called Poksu. Uh, and so really, really excited to share this story with you. Uh, connect with him on the internet. We'll put his information in the show notes. And a big thank you to Danny for uh, supporting our event at The Wing in New York City a few weeks ago by sending boxes and also coming by to say hello in person. Uh, hope you're doing well. Uh, I know it's not an easy time for many of us, um, but as we celebrate ourselves as we reflect on what our history and culture and future mean in this country through APAM and beyond. I wish you health and happiness. I so enjoy talking to Danny for this episode, and I hope you do the same. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Danny Tang of Poksu. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. Hope you are staying safe and healthy as we... Uh, you know, continue with our, our our series here, talking to not series, our entire shows about talking to amazing Asian Americans. When we've we've shared our stories with so many different entrepreneurs who have really and meaningfully brought our culture, our community, our foods, and the things that make us so unique, the things that so many of us were told our entire damn lives that wasn't American enough, that we weren't mainstream enough, that it was weird, and now we're seeing so many people finally not only living in it, but building ridiculously successful businesses around it and letting people know that you can do both, which is to celebrate your culture authentically and provide 
income for so many people that work for you to provide money up and down the supply chain back into our communities and have no shame about being successful while we're doing it. And so my friend and guest today, Danny Tang, is the founder and CEO of Boksu, which you may have seen recently in the last few weeks when they made a big splash announcing their new fundraising round for their e-commerce startup, raised $23 million at a $100 million post money, $22 million. He just fingered two at me. So uh, I had my notes here too. Uh, 22 at 100, 100 million uh, post money valuation, which is a big freaking deal. And so we're going to learn all about how Danny navigated the early parts of his life on both coasts and how we ended up creating the thing that makes us so happy and, and proud to talk about today. So Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jerry. I'm super happy to be here. That was a wonderful introduction. Sorry about the 22. No worries. I got so excited talking. Um, so first of all, congratulations. I, how are you? I mean, you've known about this before the rest of us did, obviously. But how has it been being congratulated by half of Asian American internet? <laughs> and how, how is that motivating you to continue to do what you do? Yeah, I mean, so of course, just like most other fundraising announcements, the, the round closed like months prior. But at the same time, you know, like it, I knew it, my team knew it, my my husband, my friends and family, but you know, that was just like kind of that bubble, right? In that circle. And everybody was proud of me. But I was overwhelmed when we did the fundraising announcement in January to see the like reactions of people coming out, especially because um I didn't I, I didn't want to do like a typical like, hey, we're featured in TechRudge type of LinkedIn <laughs> announcement. It was um I wrote a pretty personal post about what it meant to me and hope meant to others that somebody who is kind of loud and proud about my gay, Asian, and American identities um, could raise this much. And to my knowledge, I'm the only one that I've seen that has gone this far in the startup world, running an Asian company, that is. Um, and so that was like, by kind of talking about that, I was a little nervous. It was, I don't, I don't usually, I think a lot of us Asians aren't used to being, wearing our hearts on our sleeves in public that often, but more and more doing it, which is actually emboldening me to do it. Like I'm actually really encouraged by Sarah Nguyen and the Amsam sisters about how much they speak out. So that actually pushed me, even though I've been doing this for over six years. And so that, um, and the reaction was awesome. Like people were like not only commenting, but just saying how they resonated and made them feel seen and heard. So it was really, really good. I think it's wonderful, you know, in the last recent few weeks, depending on when you hear this episode, Danny's made a big splash growing his company. Sandro has, Sarah has, and I mean, the fam sisters always, always doing something amazing and, and all of our other friends in this space where at the intersection of the things that we love, our food, our culture, and letting people know because to grow the company at this size, you know, or at the scale that a lot of people want to, uh, we have to go outside of the boundaries of our community mm -hmm. to get not perhaps not, you know, widespread mainstream adoption, but enough of the pie for people to say, hey, this is part of the norm. And so, you know, that's why when you can go find a, a can of Sanzo at Whole Foods, that's cool. And, you know, the goal isn't validation, but it is cool to get it along the way. And so, and, and you've been at this for a little bit longer than some of the friends that I've mentioned and this, what it seems like, at least from my perspective, a new, amazing, renewed sense of identity and pride of culture, food and language and our people. So we're going to learn how a computer science person uh, who, who lived abroad, uh, who's not even Japanese now is the face and brand of this amazing culture sharing juggernaut. But let's dial back a little bit and learn a little bit more about Danny, Danny, the kid, Danny and his parents. And so tell us about the Tank family's migration or immigration story. 
to America? How did that happen? Under what circumstances? And give us a bit of context of your family's American origin story. Yeah, happy to. So my, both my parents were born and raised in Cambodia. So we're ethnically Chinese, um, Hua Chao, the type of people that all spread out. So my grandparents left China, I think, during the Civil War. And both of them went to Cambodia and were my parents then were there, um, met and then got married in Cambodia, survived the Khmer Rouge. So went through that whole thing in the 70s, um, barely did actually. And then in 1979, was able to escape to the Thailand refugee camps where they were there for a while before they luckily, randomly, fortunately, got sponsored over to New York City. Um, my parents did not speak any English, never even graduated from school, and um, didn't know what the United States of America even was, actually. <laughs> and so it was um, very fortunate that that's where I ended up um, you know, getting born in 1985. And from there, I was raised both kind of a bit in New York and then also um, in New Jersey, where they moved for like public school education and things like that. Um, so that's kind of my parents, uh, little by little, saved and kind of worked their way up. My dad started as a dishwasher, and my mom was a seamstress at like a, back when we had sweatshops in New York City back in the late seventies, early eighties. That's, I mean, that's incredible. So, I mean, we're, we're, I was going to ask this later, but <laughs> how were how they receiving the news, and how have they been? I don't want to assume with you, but you know how they have been around during your journey, and certainly we're, we're celebrating a a good and a decent milestone now in terms of the growth of your company. You're not done yet, but how are they taking all this? And then what does that mean for them knowing, you know, where they started from? That's a great question. Um, they, it's actually really complicated because my parents work their butts off to save up enough to send their kids. I have an older sister. There's just two kids there to like good schools and like kind of, you know, help make it comfortable type of thing. And to be honest, at the beginning, so like my dad actually has his own business now that he started. He's a wholesale shoe um, person when he kind of sells it to a lot of the gift shops in Chinatown, things like that. But, um, and he built that brick by brick in the 80s. And uh, so he knows, and my mom was there with him doing it, how hard it is. So, so six and a half years ago when I was when I started Voxu. And when I started it, like, you know, on the journey of this concept and everything, both of them are like, why are you doing this? This is very hard <laughs> to like, take it from us. Starting a business is not as easy as you think. Um, and it's like, a lot of work, it's a lot really thankless for a long time, and you don't get paid at all for a long time. And, um, and so they're like, we worked really hard so that you could be comfortable, you know, go work at Google, like, you know, they pay really well. <laughs> and um, things like that. But I was like, no, like I, I really want to do this. This is important to me. This mission, this purpose of bridging cultures um, through food, and so I, I kind of. But having said that, when I, you know, was forceful and that me wanted to do this, um, they both supported me um, as much as you know they wanted me to kind of realize this dream. And now, like six years later, that we grew to this level and got the Series A, they're incredibly proud. I mean, especially my dad, who built his business from the ground up, and now he's seeing a lot of himself in me and all that. So um, they're really happy. I totally resonate with you, Danny. Obviously, um, <laughs> I didn't follow your same path, but I, I did leave uh, degrees, logos, and what many may have perceived as a comfortable life as a father of two living in LA <laughs> to, to the great shock of my wife to say, hey, I need to do this. And it's worked out, but not without not only self-doubt, but the doubt of those closest to you, mm -hmm. perhaps 
well-intentioned but disguised as worry, but certainly knowing that there's judgment and um, concern and just doubt of, is this what we came to America for? And obviously in your situation, they didn't choose to come here, but they did make good on their sacrifice to send you to Stanford, which it's a big, huge accomplishment, right? So I, I think, you know, where, where I've come to terms with it is like, look, I appreciate their sacrifice, but you know, this is my way of building upon it. And mm-hmm. I don't know. They, they have to trust me that I think, and I have to trust myself that this is how I'm going to pay them back. That's exactly how I feel. Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's hard because people who listen to the show know, like did we moved to move from Korea to here 30 years ago. And now I make my money talking about me being Korean. Like, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> And, you know, uh, for a while, I don't think they even knew what I did for a living. They were just like, hey, everything good, right? How's business? I'm like, good. Kid, grandkids are happy? Yes. You know, good. <laughs> that, like, that's because a lot of us who do this sort of cultural, meaningful work mm-hmm. that is not familiar to our parents' generation, and perhaps there's a language and cultural understanding mm-hmm. ch- challenge as well. Many parents don't know what their kids do these days. Um, and so... But I, I think, obviously, as, as you hit these very public milestones, hopefully, it not just helps them, but helps other, I say kids, but we're both in our 30s, um, <laughs> all big kids with their parents as they pivot through their careers. And so I just mentioned, obviously, your, your parents worked their butts off, you know, uh, raised you and your sister in New Jersey. You ended up going to Stanford. What was the goal there? You went as far away from New Jersey as you possibly could to go to an amazingly great school. <laughs> That doesn't connect the dots from there to here. What did you initially want to do and what did you study out there? I, you pretty much almost nailed it that I wanted to get far, as far away as possible. I love my parents. <laughs> um, growing up, they could be a little overbearing. Um, I'm sure that's not the first Asian kid that's ever said that. And, um, and so I wanted to kind of have my own identity. On top of that, I knew I was gay when I was in high school, when I was like 13. But I, at that time, especially... This was the early 2000s. You, you could not really come out. Um, it wasn't as uh, accepting as it is nowadays. And so I wanted to be able to go somewhere new where I knew nobody from high school. And I knew nobody. And so I can reinvent myself and be my more authentic self. And that's thankfully when I got into Stanford, kind of that option. Where 3,000 miles away, my mom can't visit me every weekend and do my laundry. She was totally going to do that if I went to New York somewhere. And, um, and so like things like that um, really allowed, propelled me to become a lot more independent. Um, make my own kind of friends um, come out like from week one at school. Um, and that that's kind of why I chose to go there and study what I wanted to study. My parents had no idea what psychology was or what sociology was. But these are things I found there that I was really passionate about, like wanting to learn about different cultures and how they bridge and what makes people tick and why all, why there's all this racism and all that. <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. And I think what what great environment to do that, obviously. It's a place where it provides you a lot of opportunity. Now we know it as sort of, you know, startup HQ, but traditionally speaking, you know, you go there, you can, you have a lot of different options. And so, yeah, you know, I I think there's a lot of themes here in terms of just, you know, that the love is there from your parents. Mm -hmm. The intention is nothing but the best, right? Because they want us to have a life that they didn't even know was possible, but we have the privilege of knowing more because of their sacrifice. And when we make certain decisions based on the things that we want to do or how we want to live our lives or just be who we were born as, there's a there's a certain lack of um, understanding there. And so you, you said you're, you, you knew in high school that you were gay. Was coming out to the West Coast, you said socially with your friends and whatnot, but 
was family involved in that as well? Did they know? And yeah, I came out to my um, older sister. She was the first person I ever came out to my life uh, when I was like 14. So that was already back at home <clears throat> and came out to my mom when I was 17. I wanted her to know while I was still living at home. I didn't want her to think that California had any impact on this. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and then eventually my dad at 21, when like kind of, he was a little bit more conservative, but he kind of eventually came around and my mom worked on him a bit. And, um, <laughs> and then that, and then now it's totally okay. And they've met my ex-boyfriends. They've met my husband. I, in-laws have met each other. We're very fortunate. Um, many um, queer Asians don't have this. Um, experience like I have friends in their thirties are still are not out to their families, which is unfortunate. And uh, man, so that was kind of a, a really allowed me to also propel and go out there. Was I felt like even though it was there was still some transitional things with my parents, like they they kind of had my you know, I had their blessing to kind of go out there and be myself. Oh, that's wonderful, man. That is awesome, and it is it's really and you mentioned importantly that not everybody has the experience as you did, and so. We, we feel for our friends who still can't live in their authentic ways. And we hope at least that sharing some of these stories makes you feel seen and heard and in a way that you may not be able to do so publicly yet. So Danny, thanks for sharing that. I think it, it's more important than ever that the more visible you are, the larger platform you have, that you let people know simply that it's okay. And yeah. ultimately, <laughs> that's what we're, what we're trying to do here through this conversation. And so first part of your career... How do you go from Stanford and then in stereotypical fashion, you did go to Google. <laughs> then, you know, tell us about going from there uh, and taking a job at a uh, Japanese tech company called Rakuten. They were known here under a different name for a long time, but they've now we all just know them as Rakuten. Um, they're also on basketball jerseys and stuff. Was it like, I'm going to go even more further away from Jersey? Because that's in essence what you did. How was that like? Um, if you ask my parents, that's probably how they would respond. <laughs> like every year I was literally moving farther and farther away from home. And um, they were like, you know, we're getting older and older and closer to, you know, mortality. And I was like, Jesus Christ, Asian girl. But um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of reasons for me. It was, um, you almost nailed it where I stereotypically went to Google after Stanford. It was like 2.0 there. Like everybody was there and I was still trying to find myself. And I, had a lot of warring identities even after college where now I was like a lot more comfortable as like this gay adult man, but then I never really fully married my kind of Asian identity back into that partially because in undergrad, I, whether it be real or perceived, I mean, what I felt was that the Asian American community at the time was not so gay friendly. And so it wasn't as easy for me to really be in that space. And so when I was at Stanford, I actually mostly had non-Asian friends. Um, and that just made it a lot easier. But then um, so I, I never felt whole. I always had like these almost disparate identities of gay, Asian, American, we're all in their own silos. And um, and then so when I was at Google, it was it was fine. It was a good job. Um, you know, I learned a bunch. I was only there a year. But then what ended up happening was I really wanted to challenge myself. And I really wanted to do something I was passionate about. And um, kind of learning about digital ads online was interesting, but I wasn't like incredibly passionate about it at that time. I was young, hungry, and so then I ended up quitting because I got into a study abroad program in Tokyo at a university called Waseda, and I'd studied Japanese at college for a couple of years, got somewhat fluent, and just was so passionate about Japanese culture and food, so I was like, let me just go live there for a year, and then I'll find another job back in America or something, but then I ended up loving it so much that halfway through in Japan, I then wanted to stay, so I job hunted and got a job at Rakuten, so 
taking a step back is that I didn't have some type of clear plan. There was no five-year plan in all of this. It was me following my passions. And that's actually kind of how I've lived my life for the last um, 20 years. Yeah. And for folks who don't know, that's also a really, really great school. My cousin studied abroad there as well. And so uh, familiar with it. So you go there, you fall in love with the culture, the food, the people, but you didn't immediately start Baksu. But where was the plant? Was the seed planted while you were there? What What about the culture and food? Because, you, like you, we shared, you're ethnically Chinese, born in Cambodia, and American, born and raised. Like Japanese snacks don't fit into that puzzle naturally. How, how did that inspiration was Was the inspiration born when you were in Japan? I guess is my curiosity. Yeah, I mean, looking back, it was. I mean, certainly during that time there, I wasn't like, "Holy crap, I want to do boxu," <laughs> but. Um, Boxu is this culmination of all these experiences in my life that led up to it, if I look back. One of them being that in total, I lived in Japan for four years. And at Rakuten, I specifically worked at Rakuten Travel, uh, which was their kind of online travel agency component, kind of like an Expedia. And so because I was part of that team or division, one, I got to travel throughout the country a lot. Two, every single prefecture, there are 47 prefectures in Japan, um, they all would always send like the hotels and the, the Rodeo Khan and the hot springs would all send like their famous snacks to headquarters, Rockstein travel headquarters as like a gift. And there would just be plentiful, like delicacies, sweets, desserts, snacks all the time in the office. And it was amazing. I'd never seen such variety of packaging and smells and tastes. And, um, and so that was like kind of the start, but it was just me eating a lot of food. And, um, <laughs> and so there was no idea that was yet born, but it was just like, but because I was there, I got business fluent in Japanese because I had to use it every day. I learned about Japanese business culture. I mean, I kid you not, there was one day where we spent four hours learning how to bow at the right angles as part of training. And like, it's a very Japanese kind of company in that way. But that's what you kind of need to do business in Japan. And I was fortunate to have that um, kind of privilege to get into that company and work that way. However, the reason I ultimately left, though, and I've kind of hinted at this here and there, was that for the first time since high school, I had to go back into the closet. Um, it's, uh, it's still kind of, this is kind of true of Asia in general, but kind of hierarchical and conservative. It's not easy to come out into a Asian company. And so that I felt like I was suffocating myself. Like I couldn't express who I was and I had to like straight up lie about, you know, gender and things of who I was dating. And so I just, I couldn't take it anymore, even though actually the job was fantastic. They had me do working in business development, business strategy. I helped them open, open branch offices in Southeast Asia. It was like kind of really exciting work. And so I um, quit after a couple of years there um, and then moved to Taipei for six months to study Chinese and ramp that up because um, my Japanese was more fluent at that point. But then after that, it was because I went about, moved back to New York City, went back to school at Columbia, studied computer science in a post-baccalaureate program. And so all of these things is what led me to eventually start Boxu where I got this, I, I got into entrepreneurship. I wanted to come up with an idea. And I was like, wait, I have all of the, I have Japanese culture experience. Japanese snacks are amazing. I couldn't access them anymore after I moved back to New York. I um, ha You would have to fly there for a lot of these authentic snacks that we sell at Boxu. And you know, not everybody has the ability to fly to Japan, certainly not now in the last two years of COVID. And so that's what's all germinated Boxu. How did you source your first box? Oh. <laughs> very very scrappily it was um you know so even from the beginning on my website that i built myself in shopify um it was very bare bones but i was really like oh you know we're sourcing from family businesses you know all throughout japan which is true they were ultimately from them 
But, uh, you know, when you're just bootstrapped solo founder starting off, you can't have these direct relationships with these family businesses. So in the beginning, I happened to have a trip to Japan already planned, especially because my partner is Japanese. Um, we, I, we were in Tokyo. And so then I went around to the, uh, there's the fancy department stores like Takashimai or Isetan in Tokyo. In the basements, they always have this amazing food court, food hall area that's about like prepared foods and desserts and things. And so I actually would go there and then just buy all the snacks retail from these really well-known family businesses and um, bring it back in my suitcases from Japan. And that was how I created the first two boxes that were like beta boxes in early 2016 um, to pack it myself in my living room and et cetera. Of course, that's not a scalable solution. So eventually we, um, you know, I kind of came up with a better supply chain logistics than that. But the very first box was really sourced from Japan. Let's get nerdy on business for a little bit. Like, what was the goal? Because when you're when when you can't scale a box, and when you're buying at retail to sell retail, there's no margins, right? Like mm -hmm. people, there's a, there's a limit, a ceiling to what you can charge for a box. Let's say it's thirty to fifty bucks on average, and people might see the value in something that they can't get. But especially if you're buying in person in Japan, you're not even considering travel costs. But mm -hmm. You know, what did you want to do with the business? Or was it more of a creative outlet to start? Oh, I mean, I, I'm a generally pretty optimistic person, I think, um, in the way I live my life. But I knew I could figure it out. I just knew that there would be a way to do it. And to be clear, actually, we weren't the first Japanese snack box. There were other like Japanese candy boxes that had been around for years before, um, before me. However, what we were the first on was actually creating the authentic Japanese snack box, working with more of these kind of, it's called omiyage in Japan. It's like, it means souvenir. It's kind of like higher level, or like okashi mm. as opposed to dagashi, which are cheaper candies. And, um, and so that's what I wanted to do. And I knew that like, so I knew that the whole Japanese snack subscription box model could work. And I just need to figure out the supply chain logistics part. I needed to somehow mm. grow large enough where I could directly work with some of these businesses and buy from them wholesale, and then somehow get that product from Japan um, to America to pack and ship, or eventually what we do now is actually from Japan to the warehouse in Japan, in Osaka is where our warehouses are, and it's packed there. And then now it's shipped globally to about 100 countries around the world. Um, so that it's evolved a lot. But in the beginning, I just like was like kind of writing forward and hoping that I could figure it out along the way. That's incredible. I mean, there's this, you know, knowing, knowing what the scale is and knowing what the reach is, so many entrepreneurs go, we go down our path. We know that that's our chosen path. We have to pivot a lot, obviously. It, it's filled with actual doubt and made up self-doubt. It's filled with actual roadblocks and perceived roadblocks. When did you know through your six and a half year journey that, holy crap, this is a real thing and I can make money doing this and this is sustainable for me? Have I realized that yet? No, no I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, there's literally doubt all the time, even after a Series A announcement, to be actually very transparent. But there's been minor, I think, milestones along the way that have reduced that doubt, for sure. Um, I mean, I think probably the first big one was when I raised my kind of my very first small safe round. Um, and this was in like early 2019. So three years into this, I'm fully bootstrapped. It's really painful. Um, I, you know, didn't pay myself for four years actually. And so it was, um, kind of 
at sleepless nights. Um, and the listeners can't see the dark circles under my eyes right now, but that's certainly gotten worse for the last six years. And, um, and, um, but like, you know, raising that first like kind of million dollar safe round was like, okay, like people believe in me. Like, it's not just me putting my own money and like going at this and just taking on debt financing, which is what, how I did it the first three years, which is very scary. And, um, and all of that, but like, you know, I got some equity investors to help believe. So that was one milestone. Um, but actually to be perfectly honest, that I didn't fully breathe a sigh of relief until early 2021. So five years into the journey, um, when we flipped to EBITDA profitability. And so, which is a, a very, all my investors tell me, it's a very impressive thing for a GDC brand to do in just five years, mostly bootstrapped, um, where we kind of really grinded at the LTV to CAC, make sure there's good retention, that this is a real product people like, it's not just marketing fluff. And it, um, that helped allow us to grow our customer base to a point where, um, you know, we did this all with just 12 employees at that time too. And um, to then become profitable. And I'm like, oh, this is a real business now. I, just, I have unlimited runway, which means it's just like, yeah, <laughs> a good, like an actual business model. And, um, and so that's when, um, that's actually when I decided to go out for the Series A is after flipping the profitability. Oh, that's beautiful, man. For those folks who are listening, who, who may not be as familiar with uh, business verbiage, explain in simpler terms, LTV over CAC and why that's important. Yes, um, this is the cornerstone of every I would say just literally every business. It doesn't have to be direct to consumer or anything. If LTV stands for lifetime value and CAC stands for customer acquisition cost. And um, of course, I know the direct and consumer space best of all. So in the direct and consumer space where you're selling direct to customers online or something, generally speaking, you need a 3x LTV to CAC. And lifetime value is the revenue after, and then after you minus out um, COGS and shipping. And so it's your gross margin, essentially. So your profit there. And then, but that's not accounting for like marketing spend and overhead and like salaries and things. And so that's why the three X is important because if you're spending, let's say thirty dollars to acquire a customer, and then only making sixty dollars, so it's a two X LTV to CAC of margin, then that's not going to be enough to cover a lot of your costs, and you're going to be you're burning cash. But if you have at least three X, um, when we had over three X actually when we um, last year, with so that then allows you to be in a much healthier position. And allows you to eventually become profitable, and that's what investors are looking for uh, as well when they're in fundraising. When you like, what is the LTV to CAC ratio? That's what all investors want. That's awesome. That's congrats. I, I think it's incredible, objectively, what you've built, and obviously with additional challenges of being a founder of color, being a gay founder in a venture world and a startup world where we don't see too many people uh, who look like you or me or you know a lot of us, and to do it quickly, I think is is truly incredible. How did you survive the first five years, both like mentally and just actually? How did you how did you get through those years? Um, that, that's a that's a very complicated question. There's a, a lot of responses I can give to that, but a big part of it was the fact that well, I mean, I had my husband, so we weren't married at the time. We've been married for almost three years now. We've been together over ten. We couldn't legally get married until 2016 when Domo was repealed. That's a whole other story, and um, and so. He like, you know, with him as a rock and him having more of a stable, traditional like tech job that allowed me to have benefits It allowed me to feel a little more secure in taking these bigger risks. Um, I also had my parental support. Uh, like I said, like they kind of were got behind me after they saw that I was like kind of doing this to make sure that, you know, I, I felt like I could take risk as well. So I did have privilege in all of those ways. Like if somebody was single 
didn't have family support, didn't have a savings account, it would be very, very hard to do something like this bootstrap because you do burn and you can't pay yourself. It's like, how are you supposed to survive, right? And so I recognize those kind of aspects and I want to make that transparent for people to know. Um, and that's, and like even set, mental sanity wise, I would like every night be talking to my husband about the, the, the next crazy thing that had last crazy thing that happened at work. And I'm glad because I didn't have a co-founder too. I, early on, I wish I did. Um, nowadays, mm. it's, it's nice to be a solo founder because I make all the decisions, but <laughs> 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 there's no, there's no co-founder fighting, which apparently is the number one lawyers tell me reason that, um, startups break up. It's not lack of funding. Mm. It's, um, co-founder fights, but, um, uh, if so, um, yeah, so that's how I kind of survived that mentally and a little bit financially. But in terms of what kept me going motivation wise, it was the fact that I saw the impact we were having. Like we, from the get go, I was trying to sell, I jokingly say like, I like to sell Asian stuff to white people. That's like my whole mission. And if they can taste this amazing Japanese snack and like it, they'll feel closer to Asian culture and not think of it as weird or other. And in fact, we never use the words weird, crazy. Uh, wacky or exotic in any of our branding, copy or marketing, because there's nothing like weird about our products. And so sure. seeing that growth, and we've been growing year over year, nonstop since launch in 2016, also motivated me to keep going. And there's so much that I resonate with there. Shout out to my wife, Kyungwa, without whom none of this exists on my end, emotionally and financially. <laughs> so I, I, I love you. Thank you. And we, we hope we all do. Monster returns, not just financially, but with purpose and, and with keeping community in mind. Talk us through, we have many, many mutual friends in common. Many are founders in the food and beverage space. As, as I shared earlier, you were earlier than this new current generation of people who are building and entering the space. Talk to us about the importance of that community and how it fuels you, how you guys have, I, I see pictures online all the time of especially in New York of Asian founders, dinners and meals. And man, it, you guys just look so happy and it, you know, just so comfortable. How do those things happen? Where do you find community and, and how has it been instrumental to your growth? Yeah. Um, to be honest, it's revitalized me. <laughs> I'm not going to explain what that means in a minute because early on six years ago, there were no other, there was very few anyway, other Asian food founders. And in New York, especially, there were very few. And so I felt very lonely in this journey as a solo founder. And when I would go out and pitch and talk to people, they were mostly white, white investors. Um, I mean, vast majority of VCs investors are white, white, straight white men too, specifically. And they just didn't get it. I mean, one of the reasons I bootstrapped for three plus years entirely um, was because no investor would want to touch this. They like, I tried having early conversations. They were just like, oh, that's so niche. Oh, that's such a cute passion project. And I was like, don't call it a passion project. <laughs> um, and, um, and I was like, this is a real business that can make money and grow and is actually supporting the whole supply chain. And, um, but you know, people didn't really, I had to prove myself. I had to get a 3 million in revenue bootstrap before I took my first check. And like, that's like, that's a type of the bar, the bar for the standard I had to prove myself is way different from, you know, other non-POC founders, to be honest, if I was to be frank about this. And so, and I didn't have other Asian founders even commiserate about this with in the same space. I mean, there were there Asian tech founders in like SaaS and stuff like that, software in the Bay Area. But in New York, where we're like kind of the D2C capital, food capital of the world, in my opinion, um, there wasn't that. So now that I see this new wave in the last maybe three years, I would say, right? Like new in coffee supply, Sanzo, 
Omsom, Lunar, like all of these. Um, it's been so revitalizing to then meet them, talk to them. I actually even personally advise Sarah for her company because I love her energy so much. She's also a solo founder. She was also mostly bootstrapped. And uh, she just announced her fundraise. It's really exciting. And um, and it's just like invigorating me to then keep going because they're telling me, hopefully, you know, they they mean it when they say it, but that like me having done all this stuff made it a little bit easier for them um, this time around. Because there was an example of a company that grew large, fundraised, grew large without even out fundraising, and then also was, was able to fundraise. So now it makes their seed in Series A more easy too. Thank you for sharing that. And that's the whole thing, right? The reason... I don't think any of us do the things that we do with the sole purpose of wanting to be the inspiration for the next person. That's just a really, really obvious and yet impactful byproduct. We're here trying to grow our businesses primarily, right? We have we have people to take care of, whether it's employees or kids or family. But it is important that there is context and nuance in inspiration and business advice that we can't find anywhere else. Right. So if mm -hmm. VCs won't touch Asian food companies or Asian alcohol companies, uh, and we have many friends who are in that space now, you can't get that same advice of commiseration and strategizing and figuring out what they can do different unless the people who've been there can share that. Right. And I think that's the most important thing. And like you said, it's different when the product isn't cultural. And so we have other many friends who are starter, you know, startup founders in tech or non-cultural or non-Asian spaces, which is totally cool, kick ass and make a ton of money. But in this space, it's really hard. I mean, I have similar conversations with other Asian media friends, people who want to also speak about our identity and our culture. And it's like, I, I can't talk to other people about it. And it's not that their advice is bad. It's just not right for me because most of the business advice that we read listen to on podcasts or see in, in youtube are not meant for us because they're not from us right and so especially even for you as a gay asian man that's extra challenging than it is for me and so i accept that privilege but it is so different for us and so if you're listening to this and you're one of the first to do something and you feel alone go find people they're there you're never alone in anything that you do I will say that I have learned and been inspired, even the people who will swear that I was their inspiration. You know, like, no, I don't think you get it. Like now we're all sort of validating each other's business models and we're not competitors in this space, but hell, if we grow the goddamn pie, then the first person then gets the largest share, right? And so not, not to get math nerdy, but pi r squared works exponentially, folks. <laughs> and so grow the pie. What is next for you? You're at the... Again, you've known this for a few months, but how do you grow? Where do you grow? And share with us, you know, as much as you'd like to sort of the, uh, the Baksu world domination plan. That is what we call it internally, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so for me, Baksu was always the, the, the Japanese snack box product um, was always kind of like the first step to it's like curated people don't know what are good authentic japanese snack products so making yourself as the tastemaker and curator is a great way of getting them to you know trust you once they eat it um but then there's i want us to be like a gateway to literally all asian food products is um and a food adjacent type of products as well and for that that's one of the reasons we recently launched box to grocery we want to become the online asian grocery store for all of america 
where we're shipping nationwide um, from the get-go because we um, started with non-perishables would make it a lot easier. There's some other existing players that are doing more local stuff and fresh. Fresh is very hard. I don't think we're ever going to touch fresh just to put it out there right now. And I also think you can get like bananas from your, your local kind of grocery store type of thing. But for us, it's that I want not to necessarily sell to New York SFLA where there's already a good abundance of Asian grocery stores and people that know it. Um, we're seeing a lot of repeat purchase and customers excited and thankful in Florida, Texas, Ohio, um, a little more rural areas that they have to drive hours to get to these stores. And so that to me is where it could be have a lot of impact where Fox Grocery is Japan focused, but it's just like all like H Mart is Korean, but has all types of Asian products. That's the kind of idea through this platform, Fox Grocery, we want to be able to sell Korean, Chinese, you know, Cambodian, Thai, like Filipino, like products are really popular, things like that. Um, and make this the place where, um, and we can also have AAPI products. So we're planning on having selling Fly by Jang and we already sell new coffee supply and all of these really awesome brands to uplift them because D2C is hard. So let's have marketplaces to help with each other as well. And I think sort of in our space too, there's been another online grocery store that serves the Asian demographic that had even a bigger fundraising news recently. So <laughs> the market's infinite, right? Yeah. Like no, no longer are we sequestered to the ethnic aisle of the supermarket in middle America. And even a subsection of that. And I will say, too, I think our content, our food, our everything resonates not in New York, San Francisco, and L.A. Because I can go to an H Mart five minutes from my house. <laughs> but if you're in Montana, you have to bring it in. Mm-hmm. And, so, and that's also true with food, but also content and visibility as, as we go around the neighborhood. One thing I'm very curious about before we wrap here soon, Danny, is the reaction from your Japanese suppliers, the people from the country whose product now you have spread and evangelized globally, but you're not one of them. And, and how does that play into our broad identity as Asian American, especially in the face of hate and our necessity almost to bond together for survival? But if we study, if you study Asian history, we all don't like each other and we've tried to take, you know, we, we, we've taken over each other's countries and done all sorts of stuff. And and so how has how have they received it? And I'm just curious about how that's fueled you. That's been a challenge, or you're a very unique individual evangelizing who has made their entire business about a culture that is not his own. Yeah. Um, so to give context for to explain why I'm so into Japan, actually, before I kind of answer that question, is growing up in the '90s. Um, I mean, I've thought about this a lot. I mean, yes, I like anime and like kind of the more normal Japanese pop media stuff. It's, it's, I love anime actually. But the main reason I think I'm so passionate about Japan and still am is that um, growing up, Japan, for lots of historical reasons, and we, you know, we, I think we all know we don't have to get into it, to me, was the only powerful Asian country and powerful Asian people at that time. I mean, China was still developing. Um, and obviously, the script has flipped a little bit now, but like back at that time, seeing Japan and seeing Japanese people being so proud of who they are was so foreign to me. Like I was not proud at all of being Asian when I was growing up in America in a mostly white town. And, um, and so like kind of, I had this admiration and respect that I, like I couldn't understand at that time. And that's why I studied Japanese in college. So when I went and lived there, like I actually really loved the fact that I had to assimilate to them. Like n- nobody really speaks English that well in Japan and they're very proud of their history and culture. And it's been generally unbroken, unlike the mass migrations that my whole family had to go through. Like, I don't even know who my grandparents are really and great grandparents. Um, 
Whereas my husband can trace back his lineage to like centuries ago, which is crazy to me. <laughs> and so that, all of that, and living in Japan for those four years, when I mentioned before how I disjointed so siloed identities, honestly, it was living in Japan that made it all whole. Even though I'm not, you know, racially Japanese, but being there, being seen, right? I mean, actually, people think I look Japanese when I'm in Japan. Like, people think I'm Korean when I'm Korea. It's like we, a lot of us East Asians could look whatever when we're in different countries. And just being seen, being heard um, made me feel like, oh, I can be all of these things at once. And so I'm really thankful to the, like, the culture, the people for that. And it's why I'm kind of making it my life's work right now to evangelize a lot of their products and a lot of their food and getting people to try it and get to know their culture better that way too. Um, so be- having said that, when I talked to my makers, our vendors, we have a direct relationships with over 100 throughout Japan. Um, and that was built little by little. I had like one at first or two. Um, mm-hmm. And I've met them pre-COVID. I used to go back often and would like, you know, meet up with them and of course go out for dinner or drinks afterwards and do the whole Japanese thing. But like, and I, I speak Japanese fluently, so they would, they, they actually find me fascinating. They're like, who is this kind of Asian American where I have, I have earrings too. I'm stud earrings, like with earrings who speaks Japanese fluently, who has like Japanese female managers with him usually. Um, and like, it's a very male dominated industry too, like traditional sex. And so it's just like, interesting. but to them, I think they realize that they need, like, they need to look outwards. Japan has a shrinking population. Young Japanese people are not as interested in traditional Japanese snacks. And so we, they see Boxu as actually a, like a lifeline slash a bridge for them too to the world. And many of them are very proud. I actually just slacked my team. One of our makers, um, this month we're selling our Sakura season, like cherry blossom boxes, limited edition once a year thing. We have this um, Sakura jelly that has real Sakura flowers in it. Um, and it's this like, kind of smaller maker in Japan. And they posted to their social media about how proud they are that they're in our box. Um, and that has never happened before. <laughs> so when we were years ago, it was like they were doing us a favor to kind of let us buy their products that they don't normally sell outside of Japan. But now they've realized that demographics are shifting there. They need to survive their generational businesses. And they don't know how to sell outside of Japan. They don't speak English. Some of our makers have never left Japan before. Uh-huh. And so um, they're, they're now really kind of proud that this has been growing um, and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty outspoken about who I am and they don't, they haven't complained so far. I'm the customer. So that's, um, that's the, my way of having impact on Japanese society too. We've only talked about American society right now. Like I've asked my husband, are there any out business leaders in Japan? And he was like, no, like absolutely nobody's ever. And so like when I've, I've been covered by Nikkei, their version of Washington Journal and Toyo Keizai, and I actually was on a live radio show this morning uh, with them. Um, I'm very open about this part of my identity and it's having huge impact there. Like all the articles go viral. People comment talking about how it's going to have visibility there too. Well, who would have thought <laughs> kid from Wayne, New Jersey would be giving permission to people both at home and across the world, ultimately just to be himself and just to be themselves. And so this has been so cool. You I know because every time I talk to another founder friend, they always mention you and how helpful you are and how out of the way you go to help other people, perhaps because you know what the pain is of of going down a lonely founder road, but even more so that you fully realize that the only way we're all going to go up is together. And so I know you've heard this often recently, but congrats. Yes, the money is cool, but that's not the goal. It's just a reflection of uh, the work that you've done and the potential that others see 
in you and the business. Obviously, that's the only reason why investors give you money because they want more of it later. And so perhaps the the voices of self-doubt get bigger as the scale gets bigger and as the spotlight gets bigger, Danny. But um, you, you've been so great and this has been so fun for me. One final thing as we wrap, as we always do on the show, and we've clearly have indicated that you are an inspirational human being, but help us close out the show by sharing any thoughts or messages of hope and inspiration with our audience by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, I have lived in America and in Japan, it's one of these places, and you know, I've been a self-hating Asian for a while when I was growing up, as I hinted at earlier in this talk, and there is a lot of Asian hate going right now, and it is really tough, but I've never seen the Asian community come together like this right now than ever before in my entire life. There used to be a lot of infighting, even amongst the Asian American community, I think, years ago, um, across different ethnic groups or different socioeconomic backgrounds. And of course, that still exists. I mean, I'm not saying it's all kumbaya now, but it's come together in a way that I've never seen where we are uniting and supporting each other. And almost to your point that we're not going to, Yes, we do need investment from white investors, but we were, that's not alone is not enough. We need to support each other. We need to pay it forward. Um, and that's exactly what I'm trying to do. And I hope others do that too. And that it doesn't have to be a lonely road, that there are people out there. Um, if you kind of strike out and try and help, um, they will help you back. You know, it's, it's like a two-way street. Uh, you can't just only get help. And so by doing so, I think that's how we support the community and kind of grow together and stand up against all of this hate. Thanks, Danny. And I I think sometimes when we talk about community, the word capital or cash or money seems counterintuitive or at opposite ends, but love it or not, it is how our systems in which we live operate. And so uh, we need to financial support our friends, especially the early entrepreneurs. If you're able to, please do it. We invest in plenty of other things and people and companies who really, frankly, when they make all their money back, will not invest in our communities and in, and in each other nearly at the rate that we will. And so I, that's my word of hope and encouragement to all of us. Because yeah, as a, as a fellow solo person who has yet to take on a co-founder or any investors, because I, 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 I shriek at the idea of telling having somebody else tell me what to do, it's hard. It is rewarding so much in so many ways, but it is hard. And so Danny, again, thank you so much for, for making time. Shout out to Brad for making this possible. Best of luck is, is what I want to share with you. As the world opens, looking forward to sharing a meal with you and, and sharing uh, in-person time. But in the meantime, good luck. Don't let the voices in your head get to you so much. And uh, we're all grateful for all that you've done for the community, Danny. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. And I'm grateful to you. I love this conversation. This has been really fun. Bye, everybody. Big ups to Danny for sharing his story with us on this episode. Uh, props to him for building a business, a global business, uh, sustaining it through the pandemic. And with the exciting news that he's fate, uh, he is poised for a, a phase of growth. Um, congrats to him on so much. Uh, it's been really, really great to get to know him, uh, not only as a podcast guest, but uh, as a friend. Uh, we've been having some really, really great conversations uh, and how we can all collectively use our privilege, our space in the world, and our voice to continue to help each other grow and to inspire other people to follow in our footsteps to uh, make sure that we can continue to stay loud. Um, you know, it is really, really, uh, you know, 
I just, I, I think it's wonderful. Um, and so big ups to Danny. You can find Danny everywhere on the internet at Poksu. That's B-O-K-K-S-U on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. It's all just at Poksu. Um, support him, buy a box. Uh, you know, again, as he shares, there's another interesting and exciting uh, part of his growth for his company that we're all really excited for. And as we continue to navigate May, uh, my encouragement to you and my ask to you is that we get a little bit more conscious about how we spend our money within our community. Uh, so whether it is buying uh, a pack of Sanzo seltzered water, or if you're hosting a party with friends, uh, buying alcohol from one of our many, many alcohol friends, including uh, Kevin and Sean at Lunar, uh, Jeremy at Nectar, Carol at Maku, uh, Youngwon at Toke Beer, um, David and Lois at Cho Wines, uh, Hanamakoli, uh, Miso Heart Seltzer, Drunk Fruit. Um, I got really excited about all the alcohol, I guess, for a good reason. Or just your local Asian restaurant. You know, we have to be able to uh, support ourselves in, in real practical ways so that we can continue to grow. Um, if you're listening to us still, uh, we're going to be hosting some exciting events uh, in June, again, in partnership with our amazing friends at The Wing, uh, mid-June, uh, both in San Francisco and L.A. And so please reach out if you'd like to learn more about that, and we'll be posting about that uh, frequently uh, as we get more information. Again, big shout-out to Danny. Um, and if you made it this far, uh, first person to email me, I will send you a box of Poksu as we support Danny's business. You can email me at jerry at jerrywan.com or hello at dearsandamericans.com. You can learn more about the work that I do outside of this podcast at jerrywan.com for speaking and other opportunities. And with that, I wish you health, safety, and happiness as we always do, my friends. Continued happiness during our Asian American uh, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And I've been your host, Jerry Wan. An honor to be here with you. Thank you so much and see you next time.